listening to The Currency Welcome. I am your host, Mike Gaston, and this is episode number 73. 73 kids, remember, we're killing it over here at, uh, at Gaston Central. Now, the thing about The Currency is, uh, yes, it's true we're nipping at, at Joe Rogan's heels. The, the, the podcast blowing up. You probably heard it on the evening news. You've probably seen it on television. It's just crazy the level of attention that the podcast is getting. Very humbled by it, as a matter of fact. And uh, there's no way for you to prove otherwise. You can't prove that it's not blowing up. Um, uh, but that said, the thing about the currency is I like to talk about ideas. My whole reason for naming it the currency, I've had this fascination with money. And I don't mean money like coins and bills, but the idea that money is a store of value. And we talk about money having currency, meaning that you can move money around. It's current. It flows like a river or a stream. And you can move this value around, this wealth and value that human beings create can be moved around through money or currency. Now, a parallel for me and the kind of jump and the reason I call it this isn't because this podcast is about money. Uh, It's really about the power of ideas, that ideas have value and create wealth. And so I called it the currency because I wanted to recognize the power and value of ideas. And my hope was that over time I could get better and better at either sharing ideas that, that uh, are powerful, transformative and important, or have guests on that can do that. And, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a couple of years so far and uh, spotty, you know, I've gone fits and spurts. We've kind of picked up a little bit of pace here recently. Uh, even, I did miss one last week. I was traveling. So I still every once in a while miss a, an episode. But the idea being that that I would get better and better at that. And I think we're getting there. It's We've got a long way to go. I don't think Joe Rogan has to worry too much right now, but we've got a long way to go. But I I, I like where we're going. But today I want to do something a little different. This is Christmas week. We're coming up on Christmas and I want to share with you a little Christmas message. Now, fair warning, uh, this is going to be kind of a Christ-centered conversation, but I would encourage you, even if you're not a a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to check this out because I want to share kind of a concept that I think is true to life. I think that Christ, you know, illustrates this concept and under girds it. I think he embodies it. But I think it's a it's a truth that applies to all of us. And I think it's important to where we are today. You know, we're in a world right now that is in the midst of a lot of chaos. There's a lot of there's just a lot of conflict and chaos and confusion. And out of all that is this deep sense of fear. I'm really concerned to see how fearful people are. First I just feel for people that, you know, fear is a terrible state to be in. It's just a, it's just a weakening, sickening state to be in. To be fearful is, is to be stripped of your vigor, of your confidence, of your, of your ability to assert yourself in, in your, this kind of weak victim. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I'm just saying, cause I've been fearful before I've been scared before and it, and it, it guts you of your ability to act. So on one hand, on one hand, I'm just sympathetic that so many people are fearful right now. So many people are fearful, and it's just a terrible state to be in. But on another hand, I'm concerned too because you know it's one thing when one or two people are fearful. Uh, you know, they tell you like, "Hey, 
if somebody's drowning, don't jump in after them. They're so terrified and they're in the midst of dying. If you jump in, they will pull you down with them. You're not going to be strong enough to just rescue them. If you've got to find, you know, a long branch to reach out to them or some type of flotation device that you can throw them. Because if you jump in and physically get close to them, they will kill you out of fear. They don't want to do it. They just can't help it. It's that animal animal fear of dying and uh, terrible things can happen. And so this second thing that is really troubling me about the state of fear that everyone seems to be in is that we often as a society make terrible decisions when we're fearful. As an illustration, if you don't believe me, think back to 9-11, those of you that remember. Now, a lot of you listening might not remember. You might not have been alive then, or you may have been just little kids at the time. Or you may have been just an idiot adult that wasn't paying attention. But, you know, the American population was terrified. Something unthinkable had happened. Something that just was beyond our imagination. And it, and it was so visceral and visual and terrifying that we were fearful as a country. And what happened out of that? Well, we were desperate for the government to protect us somehow, do anything to protect us. Patriot Act, you better damn vote for it because we want to be safe. You know, there's all these things that were put through legislation and, and, and hardly anybody was questioning it. Why? Because we were fearful. We had to beat the enemy. We had to do whatever it took to beat terrorism, to beat, you know, jihadis and radical Islam and terrorism and people that don't love the American way of life and so on and so forth. And now, you know, fast forward 20 plus years, and we're sitting here with draconian laws. We've been stripped of freedoms. The government snoops on everything we say, think, and do, practically. All because we were terrified and we wanted the government to do whatever it took to keep us safe. Now, I'm not saying that we should have done nothing. But my point here being that when you have a society, a population, and in this our current state, the globe, I mean, the global society, if there is such a thing, the world is terrified. The average person is scared. And when we are fearful, we end up being the ones who suffer in the long run. So I want to take a little bit of time addressing this. You know, scripture, um, Christian scripture says, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but, uh, of sound mind and, and, and it teaches us not to be fearful. And, you know, I was just trying to quote that from memory. And of course it's like 10 minutes to 11 at night and I went blank, but, um, you'll have to, it's Paul writing to Timothy. I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of sound mind. And I, yeah, I, I don't remember the rest of it. <laughs> It'll come to me. Those of you that are Christians, you're like, I can't believe you can't remember that verse. Hey, tough. You do a podcast at 11 o'clock at night. See how you do. But, uh, you know, we're told not to be fearful, and there's a reason for that. And so as we enter into this season of Christmas, I want to think about Christmas in the context of this fear. And I want to address it. And I'm not going to tell you that some little baby gives you hope, and I'm not going to tell you that if you just listen to the Christian story, all your fear will go away. Now, I will tell you that if you become a Christian, I, I will guarantee you that your fear will go away. I don't mean magically the moment you say some 
little prayer. I'm saying that as you come to understand the reality of the faith, when you come to understand the reality of who Christ is and the work that he did, when you come to understand the reality of everlasting life and that this world is not the only life, that there's more living after this, fear starts to go away. It goes away. But that's not what I want to address today. I want to, I want to do a little Christmas message real quick here. And we often celebrate Christmas and it has this sense of innocence around it. It has this sense of, you know, like you think of the nativity scene, it's just so, you know, beautific, the angels up in the night sky, the, the, the North star, that kind of star that led them in, you know, and you've got this little beautiful baby lit in a manger of straw wrapped in swaddling clothes and the, and the mother and the father and the, and the, you know, a donkey and some barn animals You've got the three magi, these these kings uh, or wise men from from supposedly from the east that divinated uh, through signs and wonders that a great great king had been born. It's just very beautific, very kind of innocent feeling around the Christmas holiday, especially when it's portrayed that way. And there's just something wholesome about that story. Now, I don't want to break it to you, but if you look at the, the other elements of that story, the other elements of that story, some horrible, horrible things happen. I mean, King Herod, hearing that a great king had been born or was being born or possibly been born, went out and summarily slaughtered, murdered all the, all the male children from two years old and younger. He had them slaughtered throughout the land for fear that some secret king had been born that would become a rival to him and to his house. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's just unthinkable. So there's some things about the Christmas story that are just brutal that we don't really talk about or understand or think about in context of the whole thing. But clearly this baby represented a threat to the powers that be. He represented a threat to the powers that be. Now you might be thinking, oh, Mike's going to kind of position Jesus as this, you know, radical, this kind of radical that's going to change the government and make the world better and so on. No, no. But this baby did represent a, a threat to the powers that be, both spiritual and natural. But when we think about the Christmas story, we think about this lovely baby, this beautific scene, this, this virgin mother and this humble patient uh, kind of stepfather and Joseph and you know this little journey that they go on and the hardship that they encounter. And there's no room anywhere in the inn for them to stay. There's nowhere because people are traveling. And so they have to stay out in some little barn, a manger. And, um, and, and the baby Jesus is born. I mean, it's just quite an amazing story. And of course, this Jesus grows up to be the savior of, of mankind and the universe. And that's the piece that I want to get at. How does Jesus save us? How does he give us life? How is it that Jesus defeats sin and death and wins eternal life for mankind, for any of any that would believe on him, that would that would follow him? How many how how is it that he does this? Now in our contemporary culture, we have heroes. You know, for for decades we had these heroes that were kind of sterling silver, you know, little little gleam in the eye, never did anything wrong. They wear the white hat, you know, they're always the good guy. They always make the right moral choice. The bad guys always lose. I'm thinking of guys like the Lone Ranger or Superman, you know, these kind of like very stand-up, very two-dimensional characters. Now, we as moderns and postmoderns, we don't like those kinds of heroes. We like the flawed 
hero. We like the, the damaged goods hero. This is why John Wick has become so popular. Very flawed man, very dark man, very brooding, troubling uh, person who's, who's a murderer for, for his career. It's a murderer. But there's an injustice. Somebody kills his puppy and steals his favorite car. Uh, this after he lost his wife to some sickness. I, I don't know if it was cancer or whatever. And he goes on a rampage for three movies, mind you. Stabbing and choking and breaking and killing and shooting and blowing up every human being that stands in his way uh, for hour after hour after hour. And we cheer. We love that. We love the hero who gets vengeance. We love the hero who rights the wrong. We love the hero who prevails over the darkness and the evil and the bad guys, the corruption. We love that hero. And they do it through the strength and power of their will, through their cunning and craftiness, through their steadfast focus and unwillingness to bend. We like that kind of hero. And we don't mind if they've got some flaws. We don't mind if they're troubled. We kind of like that as well. It makes them more believable. There's nothing about John Wick that's believable. And in the same, by the same token, people are like, it's so realistic. <laughs> Do you know how much Keanu Reeves trained and how, you know, he went and he really knows how to use those guns. He tr trained with Israeli defense force and so on. Yeah. Very realistic. <laughs> totally realistic. I mean, I'm totally like, it's totally like me. You know, if a bad guy ever shows, I'm totally like John Wick. Like, aren't we all like we watch that? We're like, oh yeah, dude, that's me. But the fact is, like, we like the hero that is able to, through force of will, beat the bad guy. I think this is some of the allure of Trump. You know, he, I, he, he doesn't like losers. He's not a loser. He likes to win. He always can make the deal. He's got a billion dollars. He's smarter than everybody else. You know, he can do it out of his own uh, gut. You know, he, he can sit down at the table with Kim Jong-il or any of these guys or Un, Kim Jong-un. And... Um, He'll work it out. He'll make it happen. Trump's the guy. We love that kind of a hero. But this Christ child, this beautific, innocent child, this kingly anointed child uh, is not destined for that kind of heroic win. Now, he is heroic. But the way that Christ wins life for us is through his own death. He didn't love his life enough to keep it. He was willing to give his life up. He lived to the age of 33, 33 years he walked this earth and then was crucified on the cross and died. He took on the sins of the world and he did it willingly. You know, you look at, there's a, there's a scene, the passion of Christ, uh, where he's in the garden uh, of Gethsemane before this all takes place. He's praying earnestly for hours and hours, begging God saying, if there's any other way, you know, let this cup pass. Like if there's any other way to do this, I, but at the end of the day, thy will be done, not my will, be, but, but thy will be done. Meaning I'm willing, I'll submit to this death. If this is the only way it can work, then I'm willing to do it. But I don't, I'm not wanting to do this. This is a heavy burden. Now this is a human being that scripture teaches was perfect in every way. Sinless, perfect, this is a beautiful human being that didn't deserve to die, which made him the perfect sacrifice for you and I. Now, I'm not trying to sneak in the gospel story here. I'm just telling you that the way that he won life 
is through giving up and embracing death. Why do I say that? What does that have to do with the fear of the world? I mean, I know you said, Mike, if I become a Christian, I won't have fear. That's not my point, though. If we look at ourselves right now, we walk into a store, we're fearful. We're all wearing masks. We're bumping into fearful people. We're all trying to go about our life. And at the same time, we're fearful. We're scared. We don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to lose our jobs. We don't want to get sick, so on and so on. And we're being fed a steady diet of information that just stokes and feeds that fear. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not fearful, Mike. Well, look around you. Can you tell me that your neighbors aren't fearful, that your coworkers aren't fearful? People are scared. And when people are scared, they give up their lives. When people are scared, they give up their freedom. When people are scared, they make terrible decisions. And the only remedy for that is to not fear death. The only way that you can truly live is not to be fearful of death. If we're going to go about our lives trying to stay safe, as people say, and I can't stand that. I'm, I'm so sick of that stay safe phrase. People say it in emails. I get it from customer service people or service people. I call to, you know, make an appointment for my car to the tires, you know, change to put the snow tires on. And I, you know, we end the conversation and she gives me a stay safe. I get this in business meetings and in cards in the mail. I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm not trying to stay safe. Being safe is not my utmost priority. Living is. I want to live. And the only way that I can live and the only way that you can live is if we put fear behind us and we and we come to terms with the fact that, yes, I could die. I could very well get sick from this virus and die. That could very well happen. I can't control that. I'm not running around licking doorknobs. And I suspect neither are you. But at the same time, I have to go about my business. I'll use my head. I'll wash my hands. I'll avoid people coughing all over the place. <laughs> you know? And if I don't feel well, I'll sequester myself. But I did those things before the virus. I know a lot of people didn't. They didn't wash their hands that well. They weren't that fastidious, disgusting animals. And, you know, the, I used to hate this. Like, I ran a business. and If you're sick, don't come to work. Not because I'm afraid of getting sick. It's just it's such a huge inconvenience. I don't, I don't want to spend a week in bed. I've got too much to do. Be considerate. If you're sick, stay home so the rest of us can get our crap done. And then when you feel better, come on in. You're not, you're not impressing anybody, but we know that now. Now we all know if you don't feel good, stay home. We got it. In fact, now, if you don't feel good, you're sure you're going to die. You're rushing out to get multiple tests. Oh my God, I might have this. I've got to stay this. I've got to call everybody, let them, I got to tell the government so the government can now get in touch with people. I mean, it's, it's getting to the point of insanity, especially for a disease that is not killing that many people. I said it. I've said it before on this podcast. I'll say it again. You look at the numbers in the U.S., the numbers of death, just the, the gross numbers, and forget COVID, just the people that have died in America has not changed year to year. If anything, we're down a little bit this year. You would think with how brutal COVID is that so many more people, because they've told us hundreds of thousands have died from this. But the fact of the matter is 
well, what happened to all the normal other deaths that happened every year? Did they just disappear? One can surmise, as people have, and these studies have been memory-holed and buried, that most of the people, 96-plus percent, that are dying from COVID were already dying of something else. And they got COVID, and COVID pushed them over the edge. They had heart disease, obesity, cancer, kidney disease, and so on. These are This isn't good, by the way. I'm not trying to make light of this. But the fact of the matter is human beings die. That is part of the human experience, unfortunately. Maybe not the way it was designed to be initially, but it is the way it's been for, well, since the garden. And so what I'm trying to say here today isn't that it's all fake and don't be afraid because it's not true. I'm saying, yeah, you're going to die at some point. I'm going to die at some point. Now, the odds are very good for you that you're not going to die of COVID. You're just not, I mean, if you look at just pure COVID deaths, some just normal dude or normal dudette that got COVID and, and kicked the bucket, it's very low. It's like 6% of all COVID deaths. And the likelihood that you, just the average person living your life, is going to get COVID and die from it is, is so statistically low, it's ridiculous. When you start comparing this to other death rates and killers in at least America, I don't know, for other countries... You start to go, well, goodness, this really isn't a thing, is it? Now, this isn't about conspiracy. I'm not going to get into why they're doing this and why are they making us scared. But the fact of the matter is they are making us terrified. They have been going on about this for month after month after month. And I, I don't believe that it's just, well, you know, the governments are trying to lock down for the Great Reset. And there's, you know, this whole thing. I think a lot of that's real. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think that the government's just doing this all against our will. I think that we love our lives so much. We love our comfort and our pleasure and our ease and our material possessions and this life so much that we're willing to do anything to stay safe. And when you do that, you give up your life. You're not living your liberty and your life is taken from you. You are not living. You can only live when you're not afraid of losing your life. I know it sounds like a conundrum. But Jesus Christ, born, he wasn't really born on Christmas Day, but let's just say it, born on Christmas Day. This is the day we celebrate. Jesus Christ, born a baby, a child, God made man on Christmas Day, 33 years later, dies. And in so doing, one life for all of us. Now, if you look at the life of Christ, it's an amazing life. It's heroic. He heals the sick. He makes the blind to see. He walks on water. He controls the elements. He casts out demons. I mean, the things that Jesus did are just mind-blowing. Now, he did these things because he was God, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. But, but you know, one of the things that you could say, he was not afraid of dying. He knew he was going to die. Jesus knew he was going to die. This wasn't one of those things where he's like, one day all of a sudden they grabbed him. He's like, oh, well, hold on a second. I didn't sign up for this. 
He knew from the beginning, I am going to have to lay my life down for these people. These filthy, nasty, brutish, mean, undeserving people. If there's anybody on this planet that deserves to live, it's Jesus. <laughs> he was perfect. He did no wrong, etc. He was beautiful. But, but he's the one who gave up his life for us, who deserved to die. You go, well, I don't deserve to die, Mike. I'm a pretty decent person. No, you're not. You're, you're despicable. Admit it to yourself. You've had terrible thoughts. You hate people. You've done bad things. We all have. There's no shame in admitting like you're less than perfect, bro. Okay? <laughs> oh my gosh. Talk to my wife for 10 minutes. You'll see how imperfect I am. And in her mind, sometimes I do deserve to die. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I have a hard time arguing that she's wrong. But Jesus was a person that lived his life knowing that he was going to die and he wasn't fearful of it. He wasn't trying to avoid it. He wasn't trying to orient and organize his life to avoid this kind of thing that was going to happen to him. No, he embraced it. The fact that he was going to die liberated him to put himself out there to be who he was. He had no fear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He had no fear of the Romans. He didn't fear the emperor. He didn't fear the kings and queens and so on. He didn't fear the elite. He didn't try to say things to please people. He did what he needed to do. He lived the truth. He embraced the truth. He was heroic in his life. He didn't give care for his material possessions and his food and his clothing. He didn't care, again, what people thought of him. He wasn't trying to rise up the ranks. He didn't go out there and make sure that he got every degree possible, got the best job possible, you know, had a great investment advisor and so on. He wasn't amassing for himself. He was living it on the line. He was putting it all out there because he knew he was going to die anyways. He wasn't fearful of it. Now, yes, he did spend time in the garden begging God, saying, please, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. This, these are the moments before the whole series of events that led to his crucifixion happened. But he was in the garden begging God, praying for hours and hours. They said the sweat looked like blood coming out. Through the night, begging God, saying, please, if there's any way, let this cup. But he said, but not my will, but your will be done. He lived his life knowing he was going to die. And somehow his life was more rich, more productive, more miraculous, more amazing than can be imagined. He didn't have a death wish. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't fearful. He gave it everything. He was like all out. You know, you, you guys like in, in, in racing, the whole thing is like, don't let up off the pedal. <laughs> you got to race with the pedal to the ground. But when you get fearful, you let up. Now, sometimes you have to. I'm not saying I'm not an, a professional racer. So forgive me here. Anyone that races, if you're saying, no, Mike, you don't know what you're talking about. But the whole idea is you keep that pedal down. When you let the pedal up, you're losing time and speed. But you do that when you're nervous, when you're fearful. I don't think the car can take the corner. I don't think I'm in the right position and so on. Jesus was pedal to the floor for 33 years. He didn't let up. He didn't let his foot off the pedal. He wasn't worried about wrecking, crashing, or dying. And not only was his life amazing and the story of his life amazing, but look at 
even if you just look in material terms, let's say you don't believe that he was God's son. Let's say you don't believe that he even rose from the dead. But look at the legacy. Look at the faith that he left behind, the kingdom that sprouted from his death and his resurrection, by the way. But you don't even have to believe that he was resurrected. Just look at Christianity. I mean, it has built the West. Well, actually, my Christianity doesn't have as much of a play as, in part as people say. It, there's no way that you can argue Christianity is not core to Western civilization. Yes, I know we, we took philosophy and so on from the Greeks and logic and reason, but that alone is not what built this society. You don't get the West without Christianity. You just don't get it. Of course, now the progressives, they, they want to take this amazing edifice that's been built on the framework and bedrock of Christian teaching and Christian living and Christian freedom, Christian life, and like a cancer, kind of create their own thing and metastasize it to a point where it just kills the host. And this is what we're experiencing right now. This is the, this is the unraveling that we're seeing. It's the progressive cancer destroying the host. This is what you and I are living. The burning cities, the, the never-ending protests, the, the disgusting corruption, the, the global reach of socialism and communism, the enslavement of human beings, totalitarian governments, and so on and so on. But the trick, the secret, the key here is that if you and I can learn to not be fearful of loss, of deprivation, of pain, and ultimately of death, if we can live a life in a way that we're not fearful of losing our own lives, then we actually are living. Life becomes rich. It becomes whole. It becomes meaningful. It becomes vibrant. It becomes exciting. This whole thing of living to stay safe, living for pleasure, living to make sure that you're always, you know, making the smart move and and being cautious, and you don't want to lose anything. And that's not living, folks. You're a lemming. You're a sucker. You're in bondage if that's how you're living. I don't know about you, but I want to live a life that's more heroic. I don't need to be a hero, meaning I don't need to be John Wick. I don't need to be on the magazine covers and on the talk shows being interviewed about how amazing I am and how heroic. I want to live a full life. I'm tired of feeling like I've got to be on this treadmill trying to prove something, be successful, material gain, and so on. I want to speak the truth. I want to live the truth. I want to make decisions that are based on the truth. I'm not afraid anymore. I want to be free of all that. And the only way to be free of all that is to not fear what could happen, the consequences of being true, of being honest, of being holy. And when I say holy, I don't mean like perfect. I mean just set apart for God. And so as we're thinking about and celebrating Christmas, I would hope that you would embrace the reality, the work of that child that was born some 2,000 years ago. I want that for you. But at the least, I would ask you to consider Christ's life and his willingness, his utter abandon, his, his refusal to be fearful of death and to embrace his mission and to live fully and to transform the lives of 
untold millions. We don't know through the centuries how many people have been transformed in a good way by Christianity, set free from darkness, bondages, living really dark lives. I mean, our, our ancestors lived dark lives before the faith. And now we live in this society of amazing abundance and freedom and liberty and wealth. And a lot of that is due to people that embrace this idea that death is not to be feared. I hope for you that you can live a life that's heroic, even if it's in a quiet way, even if it's just in your small sphere, or maybe you're called to do something great, whatever that may be. I want to encourage you to think about this a little bit. Look at your own situation. Look at the decisions you're making. Look at the criteria that you're making your decisions by. Are you making decisions based on being safe? Are you making decisions based on playing it safe, making sure that you please the right people, making sure you don't uh, suffer any loss? Like, you, are, you, are you willing to, to enter that gray area to protect your interests? Or are you willing to be truthful, to be honest, to be brave, to be courageous, and let the chips fall where they may? And I think the more of us that are willing to live that way, the, the, the more chance our society has, has to continue to be healthy, to thrive, and to have a future for our children and our children's children, the space to be human beings, to pursue their interests, to take risks, to own businesses, to write books, to go to university, to fall in love. The more we're willing to be courageous, to not fear the better chance society has of continuing and the more that we individually will get out of life. So I want to I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I know this is a little unorthodox, this kind of Christmas message. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I want for you the best that God has. And I hope the reality of this child, this God becoming man, this child in the manger uh, can transform your life. And at the least, just the example of not fearing. I, I want for you and for me, for our neighbors, our friends, our family members to be set free from fear so that we can't be manipulated, so that we don't give up our birthright, our liberty, our freedom, and our ability to engage one another in ways that seem right and, 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 and good. So I wish you a Merry Christmas. I love you all. Uh, I truly do. I'm grateful for every one of you, my listeners. And I want the best for you. I love you. And I will catch you in the next episode.